As the Money Burns is an original podcast by Nikki Woodard. Based on historical research, this is a deep exploration into what happened to a set of actual heirs and heiresses to some of America's most famous fortunes when the Great Depression hits. Each episode has three primary sections. Section 1 is a narrative story. Section 2 goes deeper into the historical facts. Section 3 focuses on contemporary, emotional, and personal connections. Story Recap Teen heiress Doris Duke tries to become socially acceptable to win her mother Natalie's approval. Meanwhile, it girl Louise Van Allen's upcoming debutante ball is sure to be a hit. But meddling Barbara Hutton might ruin everything. Now back to As the Money Burns. Tales of Two Princes. Another prince comes to visit with his heiress wife. In a world where young heiresses dream of romantic love, this couple is the epitome of relationship goals. Only will his presence cause problems for the current reigning royal. Section 1 Story In Newport, Rhode Island, the bright sunlight strikes the eyes of Prince Sergio Belinsky, a charming dispossessed Russian prince who's playing golf with his beautiful wife and former Egyptian explorer, Ava Alice Astor, her sister-in-law, Grand Dame Helen Astor, and their cousin, teen it girl, Louise Van Allen. The weather is fabulous, but Serge apologizes and excuses himself as he is still suffering the side effects of snow blindness from skiing last winter. The sporting ladies continue their rounds discussing Louise's upcoming debut. Back at the Astor Cottage, Beechwood, Serge tucks himself away in a darkened room on a chaise. There are two households running about between Ava and her brother Vincent. Ava's staff is quite an international set, with a Russian chef and an overly attentive nanny for her young son, Ivan. The households mingle throughout the quarter, making sure their masters are properly cared for. Ava's entourage travels far more than her older brother Vincent Astor's. They are lean and efficient and completely devoted. Ivan's nanny, Miss Spiller, checks and makes sure Serge is comfortable. When the golfing party returns, Ava's none too pleased at this extra special attention. Later for dinner, Serge emerges in the evening attire and circulates the large gathering with ease. The ladies swoon and coo over his suave demeanor and equally the men enjoy his company. The war hero and now dispossessed prince is always welcomed in any crowd. He even makes the stuffy and awkward Vincent feel acceptable. The proud young scion and brother-in-law Jakey Astor is both happy and relieved to have Serge in their presence. First, he's one of the few likable relatives, and better, he keeps Vincent distracted. The Van Allen brothers love getting the old war tales out of Serge, and this time there seems to be some amusement in having their long-standing guest, the other dispossessed Russian prince, Alexis Divani, suffering competition. The two princes couldn't be further apart in most ways. Tall and regal, Serge mingles with ease and kindness and warmth, laughing and dancing with the various ladies present. In contrast, the more rugged Prince Alexis remains more haughtily aloof and sour. His arm still requires a sling from a recent polo injury, and he demands extra attention from the servants and Louise. Louise is happy to play the coddling and attentive nurse to their longtime family friend. Louise watches Ava and Serge, feeling hopeful over future marriage prospects. 
Serge and Ava are definitely relationship goals in the match of an heiress and a dispossessed prince. They live well off her money and his charm makes everyone and thing blend together. Ava is sophisticated and cultured though unassumingly daring in her own way, having explored King Tut's tomb. Louise hopes her future will be as bright. Upon some further urging, Serge regales with tales of former Russian nobility, retelling the night Rasputin was murdered as Serge had learned the details from an eyewitness at another dinner party, Serge's own fighting for the Russian resistance and his near-death experiences, and eventually meeting his very own imposter in Europe. The gathered crowd gasps and laughs as the stories twist and turn, all enraptured except for the sullen and indifferent Prince Alexis. Instead, he notices Serge's watch, the cut of his tailored clothes, those sparkling gold cufflinks. Only the ever-suspicious Jakey watches and takes note of Prince Alexis' displeasure. Prince Alexis tires of all the fawning over Serge and begins to feign the need for fresh air. Louise agrees to accompany him for a brief walk around the gardens as she wants to return to be with her cousins. As a cool breeze drifts over the secret couple, Louise pleads, Come on, I love hearing Serge's tales. He's always so charming. The prince scoffs. Of course he's charming. What does he need to worry about with Ava taking care of everything for him? Shall I too perform like a trained monkey for my supper? Am I suitably attired in clothes that are out of fashion and need mending? I was born a prince and now live as a pauper. I'm a secret you will not claim. Louise ducks her head in shame. She's still not ready to tell her family the truth about their house guests, fearing that would soon strip her of his companionship indefinitely. Further away, uninvited teen heiresses Barbara Hutton and Doris Duke stroll along Cliff's Walk, the precarious little path that wraps along the coast. Behind them follows their governesses. Having overheard about the soiree, Barbara and Doris imagine how grand the evening might be, wishing one day their own princes will come. Section 2 History and Historiography Without a doubt, World War I toppled three long-reigning imperial dynasties. The Austro-Hungarian Habsburg formed in 1273, the Turkish Ottoman formed in 1299, and the Russian Romanov formed in 1613. The first two were part of the losing side, the Central Powers, while Russia had been part of the Allied forces. Actually, World War I was essentially a large family feud that led to multiple toppling of monarchies. Queen Elizabeth II's grandfather, British King George V, and Russian Tsar Nicholas II were cousins who could nearly pass as twins. In fact, the inciting incident of World War I was the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand of Austria and his wife. Kaiser Wilhelm II went to battle against his cousins, Russian Nikki and British Georgie. The Habsburgs of Austria and Hungarian and at one time Spain was a grand imperial dynasty with much blood and marital connection to the European royal houses. If British Queen Victoria was the grandmother of Europe, Habsburg Holy Roman Empress Marie Theresa was the great-grandmother with 13 out of 16 offspring surviving childhood and many marrying into the other royal houses, the most perilous being Marie Antoinette. The dissolution of the Habsburgs came from abdication, which allowed family members to retain some fortune and, far more importantly, their lives. However, the Nazis would cause more problems. 
From my History Channel documentary days, I learned that one descendant kept his aristocratic charm and ran a popular toy company in Austria. The Turkish Ottoman had its own revolution and resulted in abolishing the Sultanate in 1922. The last Sultan, Mehmet VI, was expelled and lived in exile until his death in 1926. War hero Mustafa Kemal Ataturk assumed control of the newly formed republic and set about modernizing the nation. The Romanov dynasty had a far darker and more tragic end with the annihilation of Tsar Nicholas II and his immediate family, including, despite the rumors, famed daughter Anastasia. Much like the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution with Stalin's paranoia and the Bolshevik register set out to eliminate any and all aristocratic, noble, and royal ties that might on the slightest attempt try to reassert their titles or property. Under the legitimate fear of imminent death, those who were fortunate fled the country with barely anything except maybe, and very rarely, a Fabergé egg. There are photos of Sergio Belinsky with Romanov royalty. He was, after all, from one of the oldest and most prominent noble families in Russian history, dating back to the 1600s in Novgorod. He also married the former Tsar Alexander II's daughter, Princess Catherine, 12 years his senior. Officially, his name was Sergei Platonovich Obolinsky Neladinsky Miletsky. Before World War I, he played polo while studying at Oxford, leaving to serve his country in Yalta as a captain. As the Bolsheviks went out to kill any affiliations, they found and killed Serge's relative, Prince Meschirsky, in Yalta, smashing in his face and throwing him into the bay. However, as that prince was similar in build to Serge, the Bolsheviks mistaken the two and thus listed Serge as dead in the Bolshevik register in 1918. That helped Serge evade further hunting, but he would then have to stay away from his wife Catherine or be exposed. Participating in the Russian resistance as a guerrilla fighter, Serge would battle against the Bolsheviks until it became clear it was the losing side. He hid in the Crimean mountains amongst the Tartars until safe travel could be arranged. He posed as a sickly intellectual revolutionary, but it was a poor disguise as practically everyone was still able to recognize Serge with his distinctly unmalleable features. And to be caught harboring this fugitive would have guaranteed death or a Siberian trip. Safe harbor meant hiding him in secret rooms unseen. Eventually, Serge would reunite with his wife and they would make their escape to London, now as de facto exiled royals. Ironically, there was for a bit another man running around impersonating Prince Serge Obolinsky. A few times the two men nearly crossed paths. When those the imposter wished to full explain they knew Serge, the imposter claimed there was a Russian tradition of brothers having the same name. They obliged in their confusion, yet the imposter lacked the impeccable charm and manners which so defined Serge. In contrast, the imposter was a short, thin, nervous individual wore a monocle, and spoke broad English with an odd pronounced foreign accent. He also racked up a large tailor bill which was later presented to Serge, who struggled to pay it off at a most inopportune financial time. Serge did not leave debts unpaid. The imposter would later be arrested in 1921 on some random charge as to which Serge was unable to recollect the specifics. The imposter, Wesley, had served as a private in the British Army until claiming to be in an insane asylum and dropping out of sight. The imposter would again resurface as the Duke of Wellington in Paris, as well as Prince Serge Obolinsky in New York. The guy actually came from the Bronx or Brooklyn. The real Serge would work with the Scotland Yard to clear up matters. And still, the imposter continued on enjoying Broadway, including the Chorus Girls, touring parties in both Newport and Long Island. 
Many years later, the two surges would meet face to face. During the 1920s, European capitals found themselves hosting lots of dispossessed royals, both real and fake. London and Paris being the favorites, one could hardly keep track, and it always helped if there was something more to the context. While many lived off the generosity of others, Serge got a job at a stock brokerage company and began to earn a decent living. In 1923, his wife, Princess Catherine, would sue for divorce now that England finally permitted the charge of adultery as reasonable grounds. A year later, Serge would meet the successful debutante Ava Alice Astor on the golf course where she beat everyone brilliantly. But it was a later event of dancing and tripping over each other that began their grand love affair. His first description of her references her dark beauty resembling Egyptian princess. Rumor circles she was the fourth person to enter King Tut's chamber. Episode 4, Wonderful Things, and her family's past with the Titanic. Episode 10, The Iceberg Cometh. The young couple fell madly in love and traveled the world together as Ava had a restless spirit. Serge had a long career mingling with the rich and elite in various capacities for decades, always pictured dancing with a society lady or starlet. In contrast, Prince Alexis Devani is known to be charming only to those from whom he wants something. He is also hot-headed, greedy, and completely self-obsessed with his titular role. His family origins and dispossession, too, were tied to the Russian Revolution. Prince Alexis' father, Zachary, was a proud general from the same Soviet state as Stalin, Georgia. Colonel Zachary Devani served as an aide-de-camp to Tsar Nicholas II. Though not a position in person, there was a photo of the two together. In 1914, the colonel went to the front lines of fighting, leaving his wife and five children behind in Tiflis, Georgia. Later promoted to general, he would move to Batum near the Black Sea and serve as governor. His Polish wife, Elizabeth, referred to then as the Madam Governor, hosted parties for the Allied Nations, befriending Americans including Zinus Marshall Crane, the heir to the Crane Paper Company. When in 1921 the Bolsheviks began to attack Batum, Crane offered to take second son David to America for his education. However, oldest brother Sergei, yes, another Sergei, and youngest brother Alexis also snuck aboard the ship. Crane would take Sergei and David to the United States and enroll them at the Phillips Academy in Andover, while Alexis would join sisters Nina and Rusi in Constantinople-Istanbul with their parents. From French connections made during their parties, Madame secured visas for the family to Paris. While David and Sergei studied, more like caused a ruckus at Andover, their siblings were hustling on the streets of Paris. Rusi spun a tale about their trunk carrying silver and other treasures being lost at sea, being left only with small party favors and some shares in oil fields. In Paris, Madame and Nina went to the embassies, reconnecting with past acquaintances, only now as princesses and exile. Madame and the children heavily played on their royal titles as there were so many dispossessed royalty meandering about. Zachary refused to go by the title, proudly holding on to his rank as general. Alas, his children would make the most of it nonetheless, and their mother played it to a hilt too. Rusi also wanted to ensure youngest brother Alexis had the best chance and managed to get him into school at Britain's Eton, where he met the Van Allens, and later followed middle son, William Lawrence Van Allen, who luckily went by the name Sam, to Cambridge, living and sponging off this ever-so-generous host. It might sound odd covering the Russian Revolution and toppling of monarchies and dynasties, but in essence our story is about the American version of royalty, which is our wealthy elite. Their lives will soon take a dark shift, and one of our young heiresses, aspiring to be a princess, will soon become the Marie Antoinette of the Great Depression. 
Section 3, Contemporary and Personal Relevance. I've always been fascinated by imperial dynasties ever since I learned that more than just some distant fanciful fairy tales, there were actual real princesses, queens, and kings in castles. Those fairy tales could be real and far more twisted, and therefore even more fascinating. In fact, much of my historical studies have been related to studying dynasties as it offers a great premise to study comparatively many cultures and covers many of the ruling bodies up until the 20th century. I even worked on an A&E documentary with a section covering the British King Edward VIII's abdication to married twice-divorcee American Wallace Simpson. To say I'm a bit obsessed is an understatement, so thus it is much to my amusement that there was a form of royal chasing happening amongst the wealthy. It seems many young females dream of being a princess. Only in my studies of royalty, the one thing I definitely learned was I never want to be a royal. It is much better from afar. I am not much for pomp and circumstance and endlessly rigid rules and protocol. Now that said, I'm a tad fascinated with our current young British royals. I once had a peripheral connection with an event involving the newly married Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, Prince William, and Kate Middleton. Today, current issues with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, also known as Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, brings up the former royals of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, the former King Edward VIII, and Wallace Simpson, who also have a place within our prime story. In fact, had the alternative choices been made at least twice within our story, we would not have had Queen Elizabeth II nor Prince William and Prince Harry today. One last note about royal titles and American citizenship. It was in a recent YouTube interview with Lady Colin Campbell, also known as Lady C, gave a tidbit about our former royal. In 1931, Prince Sir Jobolinsky gave up the title of prince and became a U.S. citizen. In fact, Serge was so proud and committed to his new country, he would serve in World War II both as a paratrooper, participating in five jumps at age 53, and part of the OSS Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to our CIA. He would sometimes adopt his military title of colonel. In Russia, he had been a captain. Serge is one of the few decorated war heroes from both World War I and II. His children, son Ivan and daughter Sylvia, both with Ava, would keep using the title prince and princess in their lives, and Sylvia married another former Crimean prince. In a separate YouTube interview, Lady C also gave very interesting tidbits that Wallace Simpson would have been a very substantial heiress on her own, but was disinherited by her uncle over her first divorce. In the world and life, perception is everything, and it can often be hard to discern the difference from what is presented externally to what is happening underneath. Yet that is where the mystery of life lies. If you are enjoying As the Money Burns podcast, please like, subscribe, and follow. I would like to mention another podcast covering the topics of perception in real life. Christoph Zajek Denix, I'm kind of a big deal which covers the stories of those with dwarfism and includes Rio Paralympic silver medalist Sophia, Game of Thrones star Peter Dinklage's U.S. stunt double Joseph, and a female Instagram and TikTok celebrity with almost 2 million followers, Jonna. If you're enjoying As the Money Burns and especially the Astro Tales, then come check out my two webinars on the two original Waldorf Astoria hotels, Thursday, November 19th, and Thursday, December 3rd, both at 5.30 Eastern and 2.30 Pacific at New York Adventure Club, www.nyadventureclub.com. Live with one week recorded access afterwards, only $10 each. Next, when we return to As the Money Burns, it's that exciting time of year, tennis in Newport. 
when a movie star handsome tennis champion and future Wimbledon star comes and challenges our reigning prince's dominance. Ready to keep score over who will win our heiress's hearts? Until then. As the Money Burns is an original podcast written and produced by Nikki Woodard based on historical research. Archival music has been provided by Past Perfect Vintage Music. Check out their website at www.pastperfect.com. Please come visit us at As the Money Burns via Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Transcripts, timeline, episode guide, and character bios are available at asthemoneyburns.com.